Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is J.F. Martel. Phil and I are very excited to bring you this, our 160th episode, on John Carpenter's 1982 horror masterpiece, The Thing. Before I introduce it, however, two other things, briefly. First, an announcement. With the release of this episode, Weird Studies enters a one-month holiday hiatus. Phil and I have had a very busy fall and are in much need of a break, if only to catch up on a bunch of other work. You can expect our usual Christmas bonus to drop somewhere in there. This will be a recent audio extra originally released for Patreon members, all of whom, of course, deserve our eternal gratitude. If you're not yet a patron, please consider supporting us by going to patreon.com forward slash word studies. The next new flagship show will drop on January 24th, 2024. A heartfelt thanks to everyone who's accompanied us on our weird peregrinations these last 12 months. We look forward to continuing the journey in the new year. The other thing, before talking about the thing, is this thing I've been uh, working on with my brother Pierre-Yves Martel. That name will be familiar to regular listeners as Pierre-Yves writes and performs all of the original music on our show. In another life, Pierre-Yves and I played in many a prog or folk or prog folk band together. The last time we shared the stage was in 2008 at the Divan Orange in Montreal with our stepbrother, Darren Grandbois, a formidable musician and songwriter in his own right. Anyway, Pierre-Yves and I had this idea for the holidays. Why not do a Christmas concert of sorts on the night of the winter solstice? He could play modular synths and pedal steel, and I could, well, not sing and play guitar, those days being long gone, but, but talk. Talk about the season of light wreathed in darkness that we find ourselves in at year's end. And so it is that on Thursday, December 21st, the day after this episode drops, we'll be performing Lords of Darkness and Light, a solstice celebration, on the NeuroLearning online platform. If you want in on this experiment, go to neurolearning.com for details and to purchase tickets. Okay, the thing. We on Weird Studies have already devoted one episode to the works of John Carpenter. That was episode 100, The Price of Beauty is Horror. Although there was mention there of The Thing, which is probably the Carpenter film that has most decidedly achieved classic status in the annals of modern cinema, we didn't discuss it in much depth because Phil at the time had yet to see it. Well, we've both watched it now, a few times in fact, and what better way to close 2023 than with a discussion of this most perplexing tale of wintry horror. The plot will be familiar to many. R.J. McReady, a jaded helicopter pilot played by Kurt Russell, is one of 12 men working at an American research station in Antarctica. Unbeknownst to them, Norwegian scientists at a neighboring station have uncovered the remnants of a gigantic spacecraft that crashed on Earth 100,000 years ago. And near the wreckage, the Norwegians have found something else, an organism, still living, that quickly reduced their station to scorched and bloody ruins. The film begins with a helicopter chasing a dog as it flees across the snowy expanse. 
The Norwegians in the helicopter are trying to shoot the animal before it reaches the American station. Unfortunately, the guy with the rifle is no crack shot, and the dog arrives at the station unscathed. Both Norwegians end up being killed before they can convey that this is no dog at all, but the latest iteration of the aforementioned entity found in the ice, a thing that has the power to mimic any creature it consumes. From there, we are treated to a story that is equal parts gross-out body horror and subtle psychological thriller, as the thing spreads paranoia, madness, and death through the research station. The Thing is a movie that wears its metaphysics on its sleeve. You can't watch it without thinking. To attend to the events it depicts is already to philosophize. So it's no surprise that much ink has been spilled over this one. And yet the Thing resists discursive analysis as doggedly as its unnameable villain resists capture. It's a deeply weird movie. And in what follows, Phil and I try to approach the heart of this weirdness. We hope you enjoy the conversation and wish you all the best this holiday season. Don't forget to stare deep into the Christmas tree. Shows. The das. thing about the thing. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, but I was just going to continue translating. You're just going to say the thing in a bunch of different yeah. languages. Das Ding an sich. That would be a different film. The thing in itself. Well, actually, we might get there. Yeah, perhaps. Maybe this is foreshadowing. I don't know. One thing that occurs to me about the thing is that it is a misnomer. It is not a thing. There's no. There's nothing there. There's. There's no thing. It's a process. <laughs> pure process. I was gonna save that for later, but you just opened with it. That's fine. I. I kind of asked for it with that das Ding an Um Yeah. No, I think you're right. There is no thing in the thing, or is there? What is a thing? God, let's dive right uh, into the deep end. <laughs> indeed. Um, we've been talking about doing this movie for so long. It's our idea of a Christmas movie because there's snow. Because there's snow in it yeah. and a dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a dog of a sort. Yeah. We did an episode on several Carpenter movies a couple of years ago. And I did have a bit in there on the thing, but you hadn't seen it yet. So that's right. So you had to see it before we could do a proper show on the thing. And then I did see it and I was like, holy shit, such a masterpiece. And I was like, you know, got to stash that in our hip pocket once we get sufficient distance from our John Carpenter show, which was episode 100. This is what, 160? Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, so it's been a while. So, yeah. so here we are uh, returning to the John Carpenter well for what for a lot of people is his greatest film, his masterpiece. Of course, there's much to be said about how it was critically reviled in its time and has... Total flop, yeah. Yeah, total flop, became a cult classic, and now it's just a straight-up classic. You won't find hardly anybody talking shit about this film anymore. No. It is an amazing movie. I guess one place to start might be, like, why do you suppose critics got this movie so wrong? I, you know, I was going to ask you that question because I don't have an answer. I don't know... What it is like that made Alien a huge success two years before, 
I think there's a campiness to Carpenter's style that critics had to warm up to. Yeah. The emphasis on practical effects, I think, at the time might have been seen as a little bit lowbrow. Well, that is always something that sticks to horror, that it's lowbrow, that it is... I mean, we talked about this with the Videodrome episode, and if memory serves, actually, Videodrome and The Thing came out the same year, so something of an anus mirabilis of horror. Well, we've talked about 1982 before, but I think Videodrome was 83. Um, Okay. But anyways, 1982 was Blade Runner, The Thing, and several other... We've actually had this discussion. A bunch of movies came out that year. Yeah. Uh, Amazing horror films, yeah. But something we were saying in our Videodrome episode how horror is a genre that seems so wired into a more or less involuntary biological response of the organism, i.e. the viewer, that it arouses comparisons with porn, Mm -hmm. with uh, any kind of film that aims at bypassing the critical and rational faculties and going straight for a kind of... uh, Physiological, yeah. Yeah, like a possession almost. Yeah. That stuff like that is always going to be critically in relatively low esteem. Mm -hmm. Critics, after all, like to write about things. And there's something about horror where the writing doesn't hurt, but it ain't about the writing. Film musicals are like this as well. Whatever delights and terrors they have, they're conveying on a level of spectacle and sort of somatic response. So that's like a generic reason, but quite apart from anything, I think the the very invasiveness of horror, Mm -hmm. the way it gets under our skin, even shitty horror, even a badly made laughable horror film can still kind of like there can be one little image that just gets you a certain way. And, you know, people don't like to be fucked with. Especially critics. Especially critics. Yeah. The critical attitude is always one of distance. Yeah. And a certain sensed or felt degree of superiority to the source material, like I'm standing in rational judgment of this thing and something that kind of breaks that membrane, Mm -hmm. Um, something that kind of gets inside you, much like the strange alien organism in this film. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's something kind of invasive and, I don't know, kind of infuriating about that. You might feel that this is something that's being done to you and perhaps not entirely according to your wishes. I completely agree. I think there's a lot of that. I think it's one reason why comedy is often held to be lowbrow too, because comedy is also going for a physiological reaction. That's right, yes. And when you're kind of screwed with and manipulated for entertainment purposes... It calls for a style of writing, and it took time for critics to develop. I think now the critical culture obviously is much more generous and sympathetic to horror, uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with just having learned how to write about the genre. You know, Ebert was good. Is it Ebert or who was Ebert? And Roger, the other guy? Roger Ebert. He wrote yeah. well about horror. He was very honest in his reviews about horror films, and I was always enjoyed reading his. Though, if memory serves, he didn't much care for this one. Yeah, I don't know what it is about this one. Well, you know, there also, and we've talked about this as well, there are some films or works of art generally that don't really fully disclose themselves in their own time. Yeah. And the reason for that could be a cult as much as some rationally comprehensible cause. And I couldn't tell you what exactly is about the thing that 
survived like a pathogen from outer space mm -hmm. into our own age <laughs> there to infect us <laughs> with its dire imaginings. Um, yeah, I don't know what it is. Well, I mean, I think the thing slots in to a kind of welter of movies at that time that were exploring a very, an interesting new zone, right? Um, mm. Think, for example, of the thing uh, alongside Alien, which came out three years before, and Blade Runner. Mm -hmm. So you've got three movies, two of which are horror. Like, admittedly, Blade Runner is not a horror film. Although it definitely has horror touches. It does. It does, yeah. But all three films have to do with an organism that abides by the base rules of a Darwinian universe. For example, mm. in Alien, you've got the android character played by Ian Holm, Ash. He says he admires the purity of the xenomorph, right? That's right. And yeah. he says that it is the perfect organism. Of course, he would say that he's an android. In other words, he's a replicant, right? So you go to Blade Runner, and in Blade Runner, what you have are humans that are manufactured to excel at what a ruling class would want a working class to do, you know, which is basically slave labor. And that's what these replicants are made to do. And they're distinguished from humans only in this, that they do not have empathy, which turns mm. out not to be true. Mm. In the film, it turns out that the replicants have a lot more empathy than most humans, at least mm. if we're to judge by the scenes we're made to watch. In other words, there's no distinction at all between replicants and humans and Blade Runner in the end. Mm. And then in The Thing, you have an organism, which is, I mean, even using the word organism isn't quite right because it, it doesn't seem to have any body or morphology of its own that invades and imitates others and assimilates them into its kind of vast genetic storehouse of information, which allows it to take on any form it has consumed. So in each of these, you have a kind of exploration of a universe that is bereft of essences, a universe that is bereft of whatness. Nothing is anything. The way things seem to be is simply a function of our perceptual apparatus, which itself is simply an accident of evolution. So it's like I was saying the first time in our Carpenter episode, it's a world of hexaides without quiddity. Right. And mm. those are like big terms from philosophy, but they're quite simple. Quiddity means whatness. So, for example, the quiddity of a tree would be treeness. To the medievals, people like Thomas Aquinas, quiddity was that aspect of things that allowed us to make connections between them. And this was essentially the form of the thing or the essence of the thing. And that was God-given. And humans were made to be able to perceive the forms of the world in order to see the world as it is. Hexaity is not whatness or quiddity. Hexaity is thisness, the uniqueness of any particular thing. Duns Scotus, who was kind of the Franciscan foil for the Dominican Thomas Aquinas, really emphasized hexaity, and he has been accused by some of being one of the instigators of modernity, because in putting so much emphasis on the unrepeatable, on the thisness as opposed to the whatness of anything, he essentially blazes a path which will allow for the evaporation of the essences, right? 
Nobody believes in essence anymore. All there is is hexaity. But we still, of course, have the vestige of quiddity in our heads, and we keep acting as though the world had clear formed identities. But in fact, our scientists would tell us that that's just simply an illusion of the mind. In fact, what you have is simple transformations that have no purpose or meaning. And in these films, in these three films, I think you're exploring the ethical and metaphysical consequences of truly embracing that materialist construal. I think it's a way of of exploring that avenue. Yeah. Okay. So let's dig into that a little bit more. So the hexaity without quiddity thing is easy to understand in the context of the thing because you don't know what kind of organism is represented by the multiform transformations we see, the horrifying motley transformations we see. All we see are the transformations and the unfolding of these like obscene flowers of flesh, you know, each one striking us as something absolutely singular and uh, unheard of. Mm -hmm. But how does this work in a situation where you just have replicants, like in Blade Runner? How does the same interpretive schema apply to that film? Well, that's actually really an interesting question, I think, because I think in a sense, you could say that the replicant and Blade Runner and the thing in the thing are opposites. In a way, the replicant is a pure quiddity, right? It's a quiddity without hexaity. The whole point, yeah, the whole thing- You don't see the individualism, you see the type. The type. Even if there is individuality, as clearly by the end of the film, we understand that there is the moral arc of the character- uh, Deckert, and as much as he has one, is towards understanding that, for example, Roy Batty, the the replicant who kicks his ass at the end, is not just some violent, deranged toaster that's beating his ass. It's a fellow being. Yeah. And how does he do that? How is that conveyed to us? It's conveyed to us when Roy Batty, speci- well, Roy Batty saves him. That's the first thing. Roy right. Batty saves Deckard. And then delivers his famous monologue, which has to do with the memories he has, which will disappear like tears in rain, right, when he dies. And if you go back to the beginning of the film, when we're seeing the Voight-Kampf test in action, you notice that the test has to do with questions about memories, imagined or real, experiences. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, the replicant, what the replicant lacks is experience in time. And Mm -hmm. so- it lacks hexaity. Hexaity is a thing unfolding in time, a becoming. Mm. And all it is, it's a human type. And uh, it has yeah. no hexaity whatsoever. But the minute it starts to live, it starts to accrue hexaity and therefore develops uh, a kind of inner being thanks to mm. it. So I'm not trying to put all these films saying they're saying the same thing. They're just exploring similar themes. It's like there's a fault line. That, yeah, or exactly. Like, uh, almost like if you lose a tooth and you worry at it with your tongue. Yeah. Those films are worrying at that question of identity. Identity. In a world which has lost the grounds for asserting a clear and distinct concept of identity. Right? I mean, I'm really interested in what you say about a kind of scientific construal of the world whereby what we see is, uh, like, as you say, the idea of quiddities of essences still maintains a kind of like ghostly existence in our minds that if I go for a walk in the woods and I see trees, I'm not thinking about it so much. I'm just 
saying Same there's trees. a kind of tree and there's yeah. another kind of tree. And if I know something about trees, I might be able to say, oh, that's a red oak or that's a white oak or whatever. Mm -hmm. Different kinds of known varieties of trees. And I'm not thinking too hard about what it is that binds together different instances of oak. But I probably have some untheorized rule of thumb conception of some essence of oakness that allows me to understand the various things that uh, show themselves to me on a walk in the woods. But what you're talking about, I suppose, is a way of thinking in which that idea, when called to account for itself, when asked to give an account of itself, like, well, what do you really think? What is it you were really seeing? What is it? What has replaced that idea, that working idea of essence? Well, you said something about it being understanding that we are seeing instances of becoming. Am I getting you yeah. right there? The morphology of an entity that has evolved genetically is entirely a function of genetic behavior. So the form of something that we perceive, first of all, the form is entirely based on our own morphology. For example, your dog doesn't see the same colors you see. Right. Uh, if you were the size of an amoeba, an oak would look very different. If you were the size of, of Jupiter, an oak would not even exist. So like mm. it's entirely relative what the oak is. It's just what it happens to be to you. And both you and the oak are simply a particular configuration in time, a changing configuration in time of a bunch of genes doing their thing, right? There's no essence there. It's like... A snapshot of an action. Yeah, rather exactly. Than the instance of a certain kind of thing. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, that's the modern view. Yeah. And so it's kind of like you're pausing the film between two frames and then thinking you're seeing the finished work of art. But really, you're right, just right. seeing these two interlaced frames that... A cross-section cut through actions, as Ezra Pound put it in his yeah. essay. Well, actually, Ernest Fenelosa and Ezra Pound in their essay on, the, on Chinese written language, the title of which I now have completely forgotten. But yes, cross-sections cut through actions. Right. So this actually supplies us with a possible preliminary answer to the question. You know, what was it about the thing that obliged it to wait around a while to find its people. This being something we've talked about repeatedly, how sometimes there are some artworks that are untimely. Mm -hmm. They have to find their people. You went on a riff about that when we were talking about Ishmael Reed's mumbo jumbo. Right. And one possible answer we might have, drawing from your thinking on this, would be that there's a kind of vernacular understanding of the world according to essence, which is obsolesced I guess I have to use that word with a certain degree of irony because to what extent are philosophical ideas ever really obsolesced? But it is at least in the unfolding of our culture, that idea becomes less and less tenable. Mm -hmm. It becomes more remote. But it's the kind of notion that takes a while to penetrate a kind of general awareness or a general consciousness. It takes a while for... A way of looking at the world that does not merely present itself to the senses. Like you can't look at an oak tree and be like, aha, a snapshot of an action that has taken place over however many tens of millions of years in the evolution of this tree. That is not something available to our inspection. It's something we learn about in school. 
And more distantly, it is something that gradually seeps into cultural expression, sometimes very indirectly, mm -hmm. such that you know, we can have an old philosophical idea that's hanging around almost like a ghost, like a phantom. Actually, in our Birhane impossibility of automating ambiguity episode, we talked quite a bit about this because uh, Birhane argues that the Cartesian notion of the mind and the self is just such a kind of a, a zombie idea or kind of an undead idea that hangs around in our head, even though nominally we know better, it's still there kind of doing its work. This older idea of essence perhaps could be a similar idea and the way that the thing kind of renders itself up to understanding has to do with the degree to which we, on some perhaps largely submerged or unconscious level, come to see the thing as something in dialogue with our actual reality. Yeah. Not a macabre fantasy, but something that is actually telling us something dire about the metaphysical world in which we live. Well said. I think that the social situation has evolved in such a way as to make the ideas in these films much more palpable and at least immediately relevant to people. Identities have become quite fluid uh, yeah. in this world of image making and uh, ghostly communication across uh, distributed networks or whatever. Also, we've been confronting, and this has been written about ad nauseum, uh, we've been confronting the non-human, the hyper-object, in the form of climate change, in the form of UFOs most recently, in the all kinds mm. of ways in which the human is hitting its limit or confronting its own limit. And yeah. so these films become incredibly relevant because they were exploring that before anyone saw it coming. Yeah, It seems like these are films, specifically The Thing, is a film for our times because it's dealing with something that I think is very obviously relevant to us now, theme-wise, right? Yeah, So absolutely. That. But just to give you a sense of like, because um, just what you were saying there, I was looking for an easy definition of quiddity this morning. So I went to Wikipedia and, and there's a passage on the Wikipedia page on quiddity, which I found hilarious because it's just put out there as if it's obviously the case. And this is what I read. What is a tree? This is supposed, this is supposed to be encyclopedia writing, but sometimes there's a bit, a bit of editorializing on Wikipedia. What is a tree? We can, only see, we can only see specific trees in the world around us. The category tree, which includes all trees, is a classification in our minds, not empirical and not observable. Now, this is called nominalism in philosophy, and it's far from being just put to rest. It's an open question, yeah. I think. It goes on, the quiddity of a tree is the collection of characteristics which make it a tree. This is sometimes referred to as treeness. This idea fell into disuse with the rise of empiricism, precisely because the essence of things, that which makes them what they are, does not correspond to any observables in the world around us, nor can it be logically arrived at. <laughs> but I don't think it's that set in stone. I don't think it's that, like it, the case is all that closed. And I think these films, even as they explore the consequences of a world of hexaity, by the way, if you're curious about this term, you want to look it up, it's H-A-E-C. <laughs> e <laughs> now I got lost. H it's H a two C's? A yeah. H A E C C E I T Y. Hexaity. Thisness. It's as simple as that. It just means thisness in Latin. 
I think it is, these films are exploring the consequences, but the films are also, and the post-human philosophers who write about these films like to ignore this part, they do end up at the end reasserting something of quiddity. Certainly Blade Runner asserts something like that, like a, a human, a human, a, 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 an, es- an essence um, of the human. Yeah, yeah, yeah it reemerges in unlikely circumstances. In Alien, certainly. In The Thing at the end with the, well, it's a little bit more ambiguous in The Thing. that I might find my way back to talking about the thing in some detail is thinking about this as part of the sort of the crawling fear of this film. And by the way, one thing that's been on my conscience is in our Videodrome show, I asked somewhat rhetorically, is this film actually scary? And I realized that that's kind of a dick move. It's a thing that critics who want to maintain this uh, position of superiority vis-a-vis a film, the easiest thing to do is to say, yeah, it's not scary. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Who could be scared by such a thing? And if you're in a room full of people and you pull that move, then everybody who's like, well, I, I was scared by it are going to feel like... Um, they were suckers. You know, yeah. Yeah. Like you're more hip to it than they are or something like that. So that's kind of a dick move, but I didn't really intend it like that, but rather thinking about horror as a whole rainbow spectrum of different kinds of uneasy feelings, mm-hmm. sometimes feelings of acute disgust that are not accompanied by fear. So for example, in the thing, there's an autopsy that I find almost unwatchable when they find this twisted up humanoid on the Norwegian base that they bring back with them. Yeah. And the biologist Blair is cutting it open and just taking out all these internal organs. There's enough, there's no suspense in that really, but it's fucking gross. And actually last night, umpteenth time I've watched this film, I, I found myself like taking my glasses off so that everything would become slightly blurry <laughs> just because I was like, oh, it's so fucking gross. Yeah. So there's that, right? There's fucking gross, but not scary. Or there are moments in the thing that are for me real brown pants moments like they're really scary <laughs> yeah but they're not but nothing is really happening so for me the scariest moments just for me are early with that dog mm-hmm. and that especially okay the scene where Nalls the the cook is playing stevie wonder superstition at high volume and it sets up this wonderful set of shots yeah. where like because there's a like a radio that's blasting this music. It provides an auditory anchor for our our mental map, 
right? And so we get a series of largely static shots or with the camera very slowly kind of going into an empty hallway, an empty room, just different parts of the station that don't have people in them. And in each cut, we can hear the music coming from a different auditory location within mm -hmm. a kind of 360 degree, degree headphone space. And it's setting up this sense of like, these are locations in space, specific locations in space. I'm not sure why this compounds the fear I have in this moment, but the last of these cuts is to this dark hallway and the dog that we've seen at the beginning being chased by a madman, it would seem, in a helicopter. This dog comes in through a door, pauses, looks into a dark, empty doorway and then continues into a room where we see the shadow of one of the men in the research station. We never know which. Mm -hmm. And then it fades, the scene fades to black. Beautiful scene. One of the best horror scenes ever filmed. It's so masterful. I like what you're saying about how the music kind of anchors us in the space. So I think that this is one of the brilliant, brilliant things about cinema that have been forgotten. Filmmakers today do not give any attention to spatial construction in film yeah, architecture. That's interesting. But if you look at the 80s, they had mastered that art. Films in the 80s were really good at giving you a sense of space, a sense of place. And Carpenter is doing that. It's the beginning of the film. He wants us to feel like we're in the station. He wants us to know our way around a bit. Yeah. And he's creating a little world, a stage where everything will unfold. And I love shots of empty rooms. I find them just my favorite painter is Wilhelm Hammershoi, who painted empty rooms. I, I love <laughs> that shit. And the way that, first of all, we don't know whose shadow that is. So we don't know who was the first. So we're not in on anything. We're just as yeah. in the dark as everybody else is in the movie because we don't know who the first person to be imitated is. But also the music, uh, it fulfills a plot function because the music is loud, right? We're told yes. like one of the researchers wants the cook to turn the music off or turn it down, he puts it up to piss him yeah. off. And that in itself drives the sense we have that these guys don't trust each other to begin with. Nobody yeah. here is really friends. Yeah. Uh, and then, and the sound then masks the murder. The first death will not be heard by anyone because of the music. So it's like a masterfully crafted scene. It's just doing so many things. It's so effective. And then I agree, it's probably the most scary scene in the film for me as well. And I can't fully dope this out, but one way I would characterize how I feel about that scene, and it's a synecdoche of the entire film, is that this is a world in which we cannot be at home. Yeah. You cannot be at home in this world. And the through line I'm drawing from our, the first part of our conversation, talking about hexades and quiddities, is simply that the horror of like drawing out the implications of this scientific worldview within which we all live more or less unconsciously is the horror of a world that when you really come to know it, when you come face to face with it, it's not a world in which you can find purchase. You can't find a place. And one of the things, especially watching it again with my daughter last night, which was awesome, and we had a super conversation about it afterwards, is just how cheerless this places. First of all, obviously, it's in Antarctica in the winter season. And within a few hours of the first infection of them realizing what's going on, there's a hellacious winter storm that blows in. And even on a visual level, you know, everybody's wearing 
snow goggles, and that's a realistic touch because you'll go snow blind really fast in a place like that. The exteriors are just harshly, like harsh contrast. The figures just look like accidental little figures straggling over an utterly indifferent blank yeah. expanse. And John Carpenter is by no means the first person to explore that sense of not only isolation, but a place where human beings hardly even can say they belong. Yeah. Human beings can hardly exist there at all, except with the most intensive kind of technological enhancement. But even that enhancement, like the compound, the buildings, all the ways that they preserve human life, even the attempts at coziness, playing music on a boombox, playing ping pong in the common room, those just feel like band-aids stuck over yeah. a gaping wound. There's a feeling of their deep insufficiency that weeps from the very pores of the building they're in, the way it's lit. There's a book that, it, frankly, I didn't think it was that great. One of those, like a book about a single film books on the thing by a guy named Jez Connolly. He's pointing out something about the lighting. Just the lighting is always like harsh, flat, white yeah. lighting. There's a couple of lamps where there's like yellow shades, but even those just look fucking pathetic against the general washed out, achromatic, hard lights that cast deep black shadows. And the type of light you would have in a station, a research, in a research station. station. Yeah. yeah. And the type of shoddy, you know, like the place is just put together on a budget it's not a sophisticated laboratory environment it's shabby and the ping pong and everything else is just a poor like they're watching game shows on tape yeah, tape tapes yeah. of game shows yeah, <laughs> yeah, so yeah i already know how just, this one ends it's like we're after the end of the world like there's nothing of the old world left but they're still putting up the appearances and living as though the world still made sense yes. yeah okay so i don't know reading by a a lamp that has a nice yellow paper shade, a little pool of yellow light. That to me is a cozy image, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, the couple of little touches like that aren't cozy. They just seem like maroon, stranded yeah. in this space that is not for people. It just exists to keep people alive. But it's not a place in which anybody's going to be at home. And of course, once the shit hits the fan, it just becomes an abattoir and it, it becomes like... I don't know. Like a flytrap. It offers, it offers few comforts. Exactly. And, you know, using the an Arctic or Antarctic setting to convey the kind of non-human excess of our world is something that goes way back. I just reread Frankenstein recently for another for a thing I was doing. And um, Mary Shelley starts and ends her book in the Arctic, where... Frankenstein's monster has escaped to because he's just realized that he will never be accepted by humans. So he's just trying to get as far from humans as he can. So he goes where no human can go. But it turns out that not only is his creator going to chase him, pursue him into the Arctic, but there's this guy up there with a crew, a ship, and he's trying to find the North Pole. And he's trying to go where no man has gone before. And so what you have is the Arctic being the kind of revelation of what the world is like deep down. In a sense, we're all sitting in a research station in Antarctica. If we're to follow the logic of our modern construal of reality to the end, we will see that as you were, we can find no purchase. There is no home in this universe. There are just temporary way stations or temporary shelters in an eternal, meaningless storm of 
of transformations that have no purpose or no essence, no meaning. That's not my personal view, but that's the view that we're exploring. And I think that setting the film in Antarctica is analogous to, you know, Alien being set in space, the first film. Yes, because the, I agree. the tagline of that movie, of the Alien movie, was, in space, no one can hear you scream. That was the the, the seller. That was the, the tagline yeah. for the film. And what does it mean? It means in space, and we're all in space. You know, who's not in yeah. space? Your human emotions, your human pleas for salvation, for redemption, for mercy, for connection have no meaning. Yeah. And so yeah. we're thrown into that non-human or post-human or extra-human space where all of our comforts are... Um, at best, fragile simulacra of what they once were, you know. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So to return to the notion with which we started, which is the idea that the thing is not a thing, but just yeah. transformation. So yeah. this is a creature that exists by mimicking others. And one thing that I said to my daughter when we got done watching this, like, so we never actually saw the thing. Uh, we saw variations, endless biological variations. The idea of this creature is that it, every time it assimilates a new organism, it kind of maps that form. It's almost like in, uh, this is not going to be a resonant image for you, but playing Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, mm -hmm. there's a feature you have called auto build. So anything you've built before you can build little gadgets in this game, it keeps a memory of it and you can just get it to auto build that. So you can have an inventory of designs in a kind of pattern bank. This creature works that way. It seems to have a whole repertoire of designs that it can run through. And when it's transforming into a new creature, when it's assimilated tissue and it's trying to become something, we can see it developing all of these crazy variations, some of which we can recognize as variants of organisms, dogs, and human beings that we have already encountered in this film. But other things were like, no idea what that is. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you get the feeling bits and pieces from space. This isn't the thing's first rodeo. I mean, the, the movie starts with a, yeah. a giant flying saucer crashing on Earth in like a hundred thousand years in the past. And of course the whole premise of the film is that these Norwegians in Antarctica have found this ship and near the ship, they found the organism, but we, which we never see. We never see it. We don't know what they found. What, what, what to my theory is that I don't believe that the thing was piloting that ship. I believe the thing had invaded that ship and that's why it crashed. See, I wanted to ask you about that, whether yeah. you thought, it's impossible to know how intelligent the thing is, because it seems as if not only does it replicate the physiognomy of the various organisms that it takes over, but it also seems to possess something of the memory. And yeah. I mean, because like there are human beings, fully assimilated human beings who still have the same speech patterns and same reactions. There's also uh, the, the one guy, Blair, who builds, he starts building a spaceship. Starts building a spaceship So he has the knowledge of the aliens. Like he's, he yes. seems to have all that in his database. And, and he's a, he is the thing at that point. He is uh, one of the imposters. Anyways, it's, yeah, it's really hard to know. And so it's really weird where you're like, is this thing a pure parasite that simply has no intelligence, no autonomous will of its own? Is it just 
I mean, it raises a possibility that there is no being there at all, but merely a kind of frantic, ceaseless patterning. A frantic, cosmic will. It's Schopenhauer's will, right? It's the that <laughs> blind will of whatever lies behind life that's just transforming for no reason. There's a there was one book that was I've looked at called The Thing, a phenomenology of horror by Dylan Trigg, published by Zero Books. He's looking at Cronenberg films in there and Carpenter and he writes, quote, "For what is at stake in the materialization of life is the revelation of the natural world as the site not of a malevolent teleology." but of a teleology with no purpose, as evident in the indifference of the Lovecraftian cosmos as it is in the habits of corporeal existence. And what, he, what he's trying to get at is that there seems to be this blind will. This is what Schopenhauer is getting at in The World is Will and Representation. A blind, furious will to live, an élan vital with no purpose and, and that is as destructive as it is creative because life feeds on life. In a yes. sense, what we're given in the thing, it's not an organism. They're calling it an organism, but it's not. It's not like the xenomorph and alien, which is an organism. The thing is simply an event. It's simply a way that cells start behaving. I don't think there's any point in the movie where we're given any type of real evidence that there is an organism there, because how could they differentiate the cells that it's imitating from the cells that it is? They would have no way yeah. of, yeah. So it's just like, in a way, we're just watching maybe evolution in super fast motion. Maybe we're all the thing in super slow motion. We're just seeing life feed on life and expand yeah. and assimilate uh, knowledge and physiology at the same time in this kind of wild, chaotic paroxysm of nonsense, which which is what life ultimately is. I don't know. It, it's it's really hard to locate what the thing is. And I love that he called it the thing. Of course, this film, we should probably mention, is a remake, more or less a remake of The Thing from Another World, yeah. uh, an older film, which in its turn was based on a novella called Who Goes There by John Campbell, published in the 30s. So this idea of this alien entity that mimics or imitates earthly entities and can switch from one to the other is very old in the literature. In fact, it goes all the way back. Think about Proteus in the Odyssey, where Odysseus has to catch this crazy sea god called Proteus who keeps changing shapes from moment to moment until he finally manages to mobilize it and force it to assume its normal shape. This is perhaps a, a weird connection to make, but this reminded me of a passage in the Timaeus. Oh, right. About the receptacle or Cora. So this is over on um, section 50. And so, you know, I'm not going to go into the full specifics of the cosmological machine that is related to us in the Timaeus. But one aspect of it that we mentioned, but didn't actually talk about that much in our Timaeus episode is the receptacle. This is perhaps a crude and misleading way of putting it, but it seems to me that Plato's describing the world as a giant 3D printer, where there's this kind of neutral matrix that takes the shape or takes the impress of forms. And so he uses a, an analogy for this. Um, this is 50B. I must make one more effort to describe it more clearly still. Suppose you were molding gold into every shape there is, going on nonstop, remolding one shape into the next. 
If someone then were to point out one of them and ask you, what is it? Your safest answer by far with respect to truth would be to say gold, but never triangle or any of the other shapes that come to be in the gold. As though it is these, because they change even while you're making the statement. However, that answer too should be satisfactory, as long as the shapes are willing to accept what is such as someone's designation. This has a degree of safety. So, mm. he, you know, he's talking about like, under what circumstances can we talk about a triangle? a book, a tree, any determinate form. And he's like, well, you know, if we were being philosophically cautious, our answer to what is would relate not to the contingent shape that the gold is being formed in, or this kind of like 3D printer matrix substance that's taking the impression of these various forms. Our safest answer would be to identify what it is with this underlying substrate. Well, thinking about the thing, we are pushed back again and again to that substrate, which is not gold, but flesh. Flesh. Yeah. Something Trigg makes much of that in his book as well. Yeah. The flesh, yeah. taking the idea from Merleau-Ponty. Yeah. When we see the thing in its successful transformations, it's not the thing. It's a perfect replica of whatever. You know, it's, yes. a, it's a dog a or it's a person or, or it's Blair. But when we see the thing... As its substrate, it's basically a weird amalgam of different forms that are not quite finished yet, right? So it's yes. like it's like a thing in the process. So it's not a thing, it's a process that's not finished. Yes. And I love that passage from Plato because what Plato is hinting at there is that Plato was no dummy. He knew that if he didn't have the forms outside of time, that he couldn't have triangles. All he could have was gold. Mm. And he didn't mm. want that because that's a world of, that's literally a world of madness. It's a, yes. there, there's a passage in Lucretius, which Trigg uh, quotes in, at the beginning of his book. It's his hepigraph. And I, I just love it. Lucretius was a Roman philosopher who was an atomist. So he was a follower of Democritus who came much earlier. And Lucretius wrote a poem called uh, On the Nature of the Universe and Nature of Things. In this poem, he writes, quote, it must not be supposed that atoms of every sort can be linked in every variety of combination. If that were so, you would see monsters coming into being everywhere. Hybrid growths of man and beast would arise. Lofty branches would spread here and there from a living body. I love that. Lofty branches mm -hmm. would spread here and there from a living body. Limbs of land beast and sea beast would often be conjoined. Chimeras breathing flame from hideous jaws would be reared by nature throughout the all-generating earth. And so... Mm, what a wonderful passage. Even Lucretius is like, there needs to be some formal order that is not reducible to the substrate, to the stuff that's changing, in order for things to make sense. But what we're given in the thing is the possibility that the semblance of order is just that, a semblance. And yes. really what there is, is only the thing, right? What there is, is only the flesh. The gold or the flesh. Yeah. And I mean, that aspect of it, like pushing us back onto the nature of a kind of a substrate that is in constant febrile motion. I think it aligns this film with the biological horror, as David Cronenberg liked to call it, or a body, body horror. horror. Yeah. There are films, it seems like there's a certain concentration of them right around this time, although I haven't made a special study of it, that seems to be cottoning onto there being something subtly revolting 
about simply having a body. Like just the very basic fact of our corporeality, the basic fact of flesh, like what flesh is, how it is, mm -hmm. how it glistens and oozes, how it responds to different forces of tearing and compression, just the properties of flesh in themselves. There's a kind of a modernist defamiliarization going on here yeah. where, I mean, what could be more intimately familiar to every human being on the planet than their own flesh? The trick is to defamiliarize it, to make the flesh fleshy, to paraphrase Viktor Shklovsky. And that's what these films do. And they do it by giving us these, you know, Baroque variations on flesh. So, for example, one of my favorite little details in the transformations happens in the dog kennel scene, the first really massive set piece of creature transformation, where... At the end, after a long chain of transformations, and by the way, the way these big set pieces are structured as chains of variation is to me just formalistically fucking mind-blowingly brilliant. Oh, yeah. It's like watching abstract animation or something, watching forms transforming into forms, things changing into things. And the final transformation of the dog thing is this kind of flower, this obscene flower that bursts out of this aperture that opens up in the flank of this vast blobby thing. And it's at the moment that this flower unfurls that Childs hits the flamethrower and torches it. And I read somewhere that that flower was actually intended as a flower of dog tongues, that the oh, thing wow. has <laughs> taken the form of this, just the tongue and arrayed it in this fantastical variation, like a giant daisy. Ugh. Isn't that fucking brilliant that and is gross? so brilliant. <laughs> yeah. I think you're absolutely right about films at this time starting to explore just the weirdness of the body, or as Trigg puts it in his book, um, the unhuman within the human, right? The hexaity of flesh itself. Exactly. The exactly. Flesh rendered as a hexaity. As a hexaity. Yeah, exactly. Leslie used to do her homework in this shitty diner in Scarborough, Ontario, uh, a coffee time franchise. Mm. And she would meet all these weird characters there. And one time she met this guy who was just sitting there in the diner smoking cigarettes and looking a little depressed. And Leslie starts talking to this, this old guy and he says he had cancer. He was just diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And uh, he said, I've had cancer before, but that wasn't the problem. I had lung cancer, he says. But I could picture my lungs. I know where they were. I know what they do. So I could heal it. He visualized his- Visualizes and, and or whatever. It, and it yeah. worked. He went into remission. He's like, my pancreas, I have no idea where that is. I don't know what that is. I don't know what it looks like. I can't picture it, so I can't cure it. And it's just wow. like, it's no less him. Your pancreas is just as much you as your brain. Without your pancreas, your brain will not function. It is part of your quote unquote self, but it's so alien to most of us. You know, there are yeah. aspects of the body, which we still, even the, the experts don't understand everything about the body or the brain. The body in itself is an artifact of the non-human. And what I love about these films, uh, these body horror films, is that they explore the unknown reaches of the body the body as a kind of place, the body as a kind of, uh, as a macrocosm 
not the old macro microcosm of the hermetics where the perfect human shape is clearly discernible, two arms, two legs, a head, blah, 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 you know, a Vesuvius man, you know, Leonardo da Vinci, we all know what a man is. No, this is the body as an alien creature. And the cosmos mm. as an alien creature, you still have the hermetic reflection between the two, but neither mm. one is assimilable to a human understanding. Yeah. Now, once again, we find ourselves homeless in the world. Yeah. Like we're homeless metaphysically, physically. We are homeless in every possible respect in the world of the thing. Yeah. And there's also another dimension of that that I want to bring up, which is the loss of society, the loss of human fellowship in this film. And so mm. I watched this film with my daughter, who is a very intelligent and sensitive, uh, I don't know, responder to her of art. Like, you know, she's, <laughs> she has a very poetic sensibility. And yeah. we were talking about like, what about this film is scary? And we were talking about some of the things I was talking about before. Like there's a whole spectrum of different kinds of uncomfy emotions that will be aroused in a good horror film. And this one hits a whole bunch of different colors in that spectrum and uh, moments of genuine fear. And overall, I would say that the film has a cumulative effect of fear on me. It's intense. It kind of grabs you by the throat and doesn't let go until you're done. But she was saying that for her, the thing that gave her that kind of more non-localized, more general, diffuse sense of fear, of real fear, was just the total loss of human qualities among the survivors, the total loss of trust and, um, yeah, the elements of human society, that just the grinding, all-consuming paranoia of this film ends up really pushing it to the red, making it a genuinely scary film. And I thought that was a really interesting point of view. Mm -hmm. Leslie was saying the same this morning. She's like, you can tell that none of these guys trusted each other to begin with. It's true. You know, you get the sense that these are all people who took a contract, who took a job that nobody wants and are just stuck together for eight months or whatever it is. And it's the beginning of the winter. Yeah. They're not looking forward to it. It's not their first time. They know how shitty this is. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you get that You sense. get the feeling that MacReady, who has his own setup, he bunks in a separate building. Clearly, he's just like, he knows the drill. He doesn't want to be anybody's friend. He just wants to serve his time and go. Yeah. And also another weird parallel between this movie and Alien and Blade Runner is the strange place that the feminine holds in these films. Yeah. Um, like yeah. in Alien, you've got Ripley. She's a woman, but that's important. It's important in Alien that Sigourney Weaver plays a starring role. The question of the feminine is super important in that movie, but it's also interesting to note that in Alien, they have a, an onboard computer called Mother, right? Who kind of runs the mm -hmm. ship. That's right. Similarly, at the beginning of the thing, you have a... <laughs> It's a much cheaper version of the same thing, but you have um, Kurt Russell's character, Mac, playing chess against a computer called Chess Wizard. With a f It's the only female voice in the movie. It's the voice of the this voice computer. The voice of Adrienne Barbeau, with whom oh, okay. <laughs> Carpenter was married at the time. Oh, wow. Yeah. And this thing beats him at chess, and then he he pours his whiskey into the computer, frying it, and calls the computer a cheating bitch and that's the that's the end of the feminine in this movie there's no mention yeah, of wives at home there's no mention of daughters no mention like there's like yeah. one poster with a female figure like it's a world bereft of the feminine yeah i found true. that interesting 
Blade Runner. The only women in Blade Runner are replicants in the original. You got Rachel and you've got uh, Daryl Hannah's character. That's true. And the other one, the the stripper one. Yeah. So weird. I don't know what to make of that, but it has something to do with a world that has repressed. Maybe there's some connection we can make between femininity and quiddity (laughs) and the repression of quiddity or the repression of the feminine. I don't know, but it's just an interesting observation. And unlike many films from the 80s that are wall-to-wall dudes, like Predator or whatever, uh, I mean, there may be female characters in films like that, but they're hardly the ones that you remember. There's not a lot of testosterone-laced male bonding type energy in this. Quite the opposite. Yeah. In fact, it's, I mean, one thing it shows you is a kind of utter collapse of uh, masculinity. And of solidarity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, masculinity, what would we say? Under siege? Yeah. Uh, Shown its place. (laughs) (laughs) There's a distinct post-Vietnam context to be read here. I believe that Mac, the Kurt Russell character, is supposed to be a a Vietnam vet, like a chopper pilot from Vietnam. Yeah. It's never mentioned in the film, but that's kind of the backstory. Yeah. Yeah, which explains how you get somebody who has a certain kind of brutal and ruthless effectiveness, but also does not seem to have any kind of warmth, no, any kind of kindness in his soul. But, you know, it comes out like Palmer, the perennially stoned, I think he's an assistant mechanic, who after Gary, the station commander, shoots the Norwegian, assuming that he's gone nuts and poses a threat to the American research station. Palmer taunts him, being like, yeah, I've been wondering when El Capitan would get a chance to use his pop gun. That's reminiscent of those things that you would read about in the 70s of, you know, hippies taunting servicemen in uniform. Yeah, how many women and children did you kill? Blah, blah, blah. That kind of thing. An ultimate kind of collapse of the sort of war movie narratives of masculinity showing us like a homosocial world an all-male world yeah a world of incels yeah not a band of brothers but just a desperate scrabbling headlong ass over tea kettle rush to total inhumanity
I was talking about this with Alice after we got done watching it, and she was like, so the way the thing works is it just perfectly replicates organisms. And so, like, once it's completed its transformation, basically, you're not going to be able to tell the difference. And you get the sense that if it gets out to the outside world, it would do this not just with mammals, but like every organism. And so you would end up with, you know, within a certain period of time, this is, what is it, uh, Blair does this calculation that it would take like, a, you know, 100,000 hours or something for the entire world to be assimilated by this parasitic creature, which makes him go paranoid and insane. I think I know where you're going. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, so what difference would it make if the thing just got what it wanted? You'd end up with a perfect replica of our world. Yeah. <laughs> Except. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's not like the invasion of the thing would be remembered necessarily because everybody would be the thing. So <laughs> yeah. So it's not that bad. Yeah. This reminds me of, uh, yeah, sorry. It reminds me of that dream I had, that bizarre dream, the virus dream. So this is a callback to a Patreon thing I wrote in October, 2019. And it was this terrible nightmare. One of the scariest nightmares I ever had. Although relating it to you, it would be difficult to say exactly what was so terrifying, but it was exactly on this point that it was so terrifying. So this is October 2nd, 2019. This is before COVID was a thing. And I forgot about it entirely until I was looking for something else and COVID had happened. And I reread this thing that I'd completely forgotten about. And I was like, oh my God, like it's definitely the four echo of the COVID pandemic. And so anyway, I'm going to read a little bit from what I wrote. I had a nightmare a few nights ago, a real swinger of a nightmare, as Frank Sinatra might say. It had no narrative to speak of, only a single terrifying image. I'm looking through a doorway at a dining room in an ordinary looking house. It doesn't look like my house, just some generic suburban sort of place, though maybe a bit nicer than average. There's a big wooden table at the center. Hovering above the table is a, what to call it, an entity of some kind. I might add editorially, a thing, perhaps. An intelligence, though not necessarily alive in the usual sense. It looks like an electron microscope photo of a virus, a ball with spikes or tendrils sticking out of it. I just learned that these spikes are called peplumers. This entity, let's just call it the virus, was radiant, lit up from within, it seemed. Its spikes rainbow-hued, prisming the light. And I was scared of this thing. It didn't communicate with me, but I had a sense of terrible danger that this thing was going to do something. And then it did something almost indescribable. I mean, I saw it in the dream, but I can't tell you exactly what I saw. Honest to gods, it was just like those monsters in Lovecraft stories that leave the narrator gasping for intelligible description, belonging as they do to some order of being dissonant to human sense. And so I go on to describe what it does. I write, it was like the spikes softened and grew longer, losing their sharp geometrical appearance and snaking down off the table. There was something horrible in this motion. The virus deliquesced, and as it did, the rainbow prism tentacles seemed to spread and penetrate into the very matter of the room. Again, remarking editorially from 2023, this seems not only quite apt to the way the coronavirus penetrated all 
aspects of life, organic and non-organic. Um, yep. Likewise, there are strong resonances with the thing, a film which at that point I had not seen. The many colors of, the, of these sort of tentacle things swirled and took on the colors of everything they touched. No, they became everything they touched. It was like invasion of the body snatchers or the thing, but it wasn't just people who were being replicated. It was all of reality. I ran, but realized the futility of running for I could never escape this thing. I had already turned into it or it had already turned into me. It's not enough to say that it transformed the world. It became the world. It replaced it. Until a moment ago, it was the world just as we experienced it, a world of various things, tables, walls, carpets, etc. And then the virus had infected it, and all the tables and walls and carpets became what the virus was, intelligent. The world became mind, and the mind was the virus. The last image of the dream was of an endless procession of sad, grotesque, Maurice Sendak-looking animals trudging through a life now made meaningless. By impregnating the world of matter with mind, the virus had destroyed the possibility of a life made vivid by struggle and choice and chance. I understood that the virus was tired of seeing the denizens of this universe struggle and fail and die. The virus thought it could do better. It would no longer allow us to see what we could do on our own. We were being taken in hand, being managed, all part of a plan. Terrible. Terrible. And that was my dream. <laughs> yep. And so the end of my dream was this vision of a world completely remapped in this way, completely removing the possibility of anything ever happening in the sense that we human beings are capable of understanding something happening a universe entirely evacuated of a, anything that we could understand as meaning and replaced instead with the incomprehensible and geometrical designs of this alien virus a world of pure hexaity because for something to happen i think you need essence you need something to be what it is or else if, if everything is just reducible to something it's not, everything, everything is just flesh, then nothing ever happens. If, if it's just the gold changing shape from moment to moment, if everything is COVID, <laughs> if everything <laughs> is the virus, then nothing happens. That's right. So maybe the world wouldn't be the same after the thing was done with yeah, it. Yeah, something would be missing. But that, that is reason for hope. That means that we have something the thing doesn't have. Yes. What do we right. have that the thing doesn't have? We're not the thing. We are all different things. There's a great book by Clive Barker called The Great and Secret Show, written in the and around the same time, 1980, you know, came out in 85, something like that, in which uh, you have these characters vying for control or access to this other world, a world of mystical dreams and story, a kind of world of infinite possibility, a world of true and lasting and important and significant change, right? A, a fantasy world. And the world in the book is called Quiddity. <laughs> hmm. And it's what the kind of real world in the novel, the primary world in the novel lacks is Quiddity. 
What do you make of the ending of this film? It feels like a context in which we could talk about the famous ending and what people want to do always with the ending of this film. Okay, so what happens is that McCready blows up the entire base and everything's on fire. And so he's warm for now, but pretty soon it's going to be 100 degrees below zero and he's going to freeze to death because all of the means of human survival have been destroyed in destroying this monster. And as he's sitting, clearly injured, he hasn't slept in several days. He's got his trusty bottle of Jane B whiskey to keep him company while he freezes to death. Uh, Childs, who we've lost track of, comes out of the, the gloom and tells us that he was off chasing what he thought was Blair and came back to find the base destroyed. And we don't know if he's telling the truth or if he got assimilated somehow. Mm -hmm. And it's on that ambiguous note that the film ends. And I was complaining to my daughter last night about a certain kind of fan that likes to come up with all kinds of theories, which on the internet with the attitude of invincible certainty that everybody seems to have when they make pronouncements about works of art, you know, people will say that they've solved the ending. They figured it out. You know, we've debunked it. We've, <laughs> you know, like Twin Peaks yeah. explained, like that kind of shit that I yeah. hate. It always seems to be created by people who are absolutely intolerant of mysteries and feel that it is a failing of a film for it to have any ambiguities whatsoever. And so I read one of these things recently. It was like, actually... McCready has a gasoline in his bottle of Jane B and he hands it to Childs and he knows that Childs is a thing because only the thing would drink gasoline. This is, <laughs> of course, just fucking invented from whole cloth. <laughs> okay. This person's, but this person seemed to be very sure of themselves and offering this. But the point is, the point I'm making simply is that there is a lot of ambiguity in this film and I am not especially interested in trying to explain these ambiguities away. They're just ambiguous. What we know happens is that McCready says basically like, regardless of whether either of us might be the thing or not, neither of us is really in a situation where we can do anything about it. So let's just hang out, Wait see what see happens. What, see what happens. I love that. And I love that. Yeah. There's something about it that actually feels like a return to something recognizably human, a moment of actual human connection. It's just like, what would the world completely assimilated by the thing look like? It wouldn't look like that. It would be the world just as it is, but minus that. Moments minus, like that. Moments where yeah. human beings can sit down and actually engage with one another as human beings and make choices on the basis of their interactions. Right. And also a world in which there is always the expectancy that something might happen that will astonish you. Yeah. See what happens. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and, of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>